Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Carrie Magro. Carrie is an autism self-advocate, international motivational speaker, best-selling author, entertainment consultant, and nonprofit founder. Carrie is the author of the Amazon bestseller, Defining Autism from the Heart, Autism and Falling in Love, and I Will Light It Up Blue. He also contributed to College for Students with Disabilities, We Do Belong, featuring other prominent advocates such as Temple Grandin and Stephen M. Shore. He presented a TEDx talk titled, What Happens to Children with Autism When They Become Adults? And he currently blogs for several organizations, including Autism Speaks and The Mighty. As an entertainment consultant, Carrie has worked on the films Jane Wants a Boyfriend and Joyful Noise, starring Queen Latifah and Dolly Parton, as well as the HBO series Mrs. Fletcher. His nonprofit organization, KFM Making a Difference, aims to break down barriers for people with special needs by granting college scholarships to adults with autism. In this conversation, we discuss how autism has impacted Carrie's life, how to prepare for transitioning to adulthood, autism representation in the media, and common challenges people on the spectrum face when looking for a partner. In this episode, discover what's possible when authenticity gets the part. For more information about Carrie and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, join our Facebook group Autism Knows No Borders, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. And now I present you, Carrie Magro. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Glad to be here. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Dr. Carrie Magro, and I have a very personal story uh, in the autism community. I was nonverbal until I was two and a half, diagnosed with autism when I was four, and today am one of the only professionally certified speakers on the autism spectrum in the country. Uh, have had the opportunity to work with Speaker Bureau called the National Speakers Association for the past 10 years, wear many hats in the autism community as an author, uh, autism entertainment consultant, working on several films and TV shows, and also being a nonprofit founder to have the ability to give out scholarships for students with autism to go to college while also promoting disability awareness via my nonprofit, KFM Making a Difference. Wonderful. All right, well, let's start with talking about your autism. You say that you didn't speak until you were two and a half. How did your autism impact your life growing up? So there was not a lot of people who really knew a lot about autism when I was diagnosed in the early 90s. Everyone kind of just had the idea of autism as Rain Man. They assumed that all people with autism were bad at communication and great at math. Uh, So. 
definitely early on, it was a struggle, especially trying to have my parents trying to find services to help me reach developmental milestones. But as I got a little bit older, I was able to overcome a lot of different autism characteristics, such as my sensory challenges. I said my first word when I was about two and a half and started speaking complete sentences at seven. And once I started talking, you couldn't give me a stop talking. Perfect for having a career in public speaking. (laughs) So what are some of those breakthroughs that you've had that have helped you to be who you are today? So definitely speaking was one of the big milestones. And obviously, people who are nonverbal are often highly intelligent within our autism community. But that was one of the biggest barriers, being able to speak for the first time. And then once my parents got that communication, they really like started with a lot of speech therapy, a lot of occupational therapy for my ongoing sensory challenges, and then just helping me with some fine motor challenges as well, especially with balance. Because of my autism diagnosis, I've always had a lot of challenges when it came to balance and fine motor and, and I was able to overcome a lot of that just simply because of over 15 hours a week of ongoing therapy. And without the love and support of my village, being my parents, my educators, and my therapists, I wouldn't be where I am today. Hmm. How does your autism affect your life today? I still deal with some sensory challenges, even though I have overcome a lot of those challenges, especially when there's unexpected routine changes. Obviously, during a time like COVID-19, everyone's daily routine has been turned upside down. So I still deal with routine changes and challenges trying to fit into a new routine. And then also some very minor sensory challenges. And then also connecting with others. Sometimes I have mind blindness. And I'm not able to understand the perspectives of others. So I have to be very mindful of trying to put myself in the shoes of any friend or any specific partner I I may have. Mm, Interesting. So how do you cope with these changes that might come up? Do you have some strategies that you go to? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest things is I really try to latch on to my key interest and I try to keep myself busy. I speak regularly about almost 100 times a year around the globe. And when March happened in 2020 and all my speaking engagements were either postponed or canceled, I was kind of shown a new normal of being in my apartment 24-7 and uh, really latching on to just watching sports, which has always – I wanted to grow up to be the next NBA Larry Bird uh, mm-hmm. and – I also wanted to be a sixth member of the Backstreet Boys. So (laughs) I really just latched on the sports as a way to cope in addition to listening to a lot, a lot of music. Mm -hmm. Backstreet Boys? Yeah, Backstreet Boys. uh, Well, not not so much Backstreet Boys anymore. This was kind of 10-year-old Carrie. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But uh, lots of music today, yep. So going back to what you were saying about those social interactions, could you kind of walk us through what that might be like? Like if you're having a conversation with someone, what are some tricks that you do to put yourself in their shoes? Or how do you remind yourself to take someone else's perspective? 
I always try to ask questions. That's one of the most important things. Because sometimes nonverbal communication, especially body language, it is really hard for me to interpret. I really try to be as open as possible with my friends, potential relationship partners to understand their perspective as much as possible. And I think that's just something that as a society, we need to do a better job of because none of us are mind readers. <laughs> so at the end mm-hmm. of the day, really just making sure that we're asking questions if there's any level on, of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of your strengths related to your autism? It's a great question. I really laser focus when it comes to key interest. Theater was something that helped me tremendously come out of my shell. I was always a shy kid growing up. And a lot of that was because of my limited communication. And I just fell in love with theater as a very young child. And it led to the career I have today. So again, my strengths being my laser focus in my key interest. In addition to that, I definitely think I'm more empathetic and honest than most people I know. Not saying that (laughs) uh, there are people in my life who aren't honest, but with autism, mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely feel like sometimes I say the truth and the, the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And sometimes it backfires, uh, but I, I definitely think I'm more honest than most people I know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's refreshing for people. You know, I think some people maybe shy away from saying what's on their mind because they're afraid of offending or they don't want to be judged themselves. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, we, we have kind of our society sometimes, especially in 2021, there's such a toxicity sometimes in people when it comes to not showing the world their own true self and Sometimes I think that is because of pop culture and we see images on the TV and we're like, all right, this is how our life needs to be. And I think especially in the autism community, some of the most authentic people I know are autistic. So, hmm. How did you go from a, a kid who's so into theater to becoming a public speaker? Well, I definitely wanted to continue pursuing acting in college. I performed in over 20 plays throughout my high school experience. And then once I got to college, I realized that there was a lot of academic work that I needed to get done. So I really, really tried to latch on to public speaking as kind of a a, a medium, if you will. I was at the point where I knew I couldn't be in the place because it was committing a long list of hours each week and I would have no time for my academics. And once I started to become an autism advocate, the idea of being, instead of being on stage and being in front of a podium was a very easy transition for myself. Being able to play different parts made me able to really work on my public speaking at the same time, which helped me get to the point where I am today. Mm. So you also speak widely about 
transition to adulthood. How old are you now? <laughs> I am 21 plus 12. Okay. <laughs> so what was transition to adulthood like for you? It's interesting. Puberty hit me like a ton of bricks. I went from a basically 5'9 to 6'3 within two, two and a half years. So there was a lot of growing pains when it came to my transition to adulthood. Also, at the same time, I didn't know anything about what life would be like after high school. I received no transitional planning to prepare me for the next steps, especially when it came to college, because I got accepted into all 15 colleges I applied to. And nobody ever told me things like, oh, you're not going to get an IEP in college. I, I assumed I went up to my disability support specialist and I told her, if you could give me that IEP, I'll be right out the door. And she was like, you don't get an IEP in college. You get 504 reasonable accommodations. I was like, cool. I don't know what mm. that means. <laughs> so. Just to clarify, Carrie, IEP is individualized education plan that students will typically get when they're in the public school. Yes, correct. Yes. Especially with a disclosed diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I mean... That, that was definitely a struggle. I had to become my own self-advocate and really self-advocate for my wants and needs. And there was no blueprint on, on what that looked like. So that was definitely a challenge. But once I started to come out about my autism diagnosis, it really started to open up. People started providing me more information, especially on the college level. And uh, disclosure was one of the big keys to my overall development, especially during the transition to adulthood. Were you not being as open about your diagnosis before? It wasn't necessarily that I wasn't being open, but it was simply that everyone would look at me and they would say, Carrie, you have autism, but you don't look it. You don't look like you have autism. And having this quote unquote invisible disability, if you will, really never made autism come up as a part of a conversation unless I was needing accommodations. I see. Yeah. So it was literally just that I was really not necessarily close-minded about it. I It just really never came up unless it was for accommodations. Mm -hmm. Got it. So what do you think could be done better to support individuals with this transition? Peer mentoring would be the number one thing. I looked up to people with disabilities like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, NBA basketball players who had attention deficit disorder, ADHD. And I would look at them for inspiration when I was having my own learning challenges. But I really didn't know anyone with autism. I didn't know the Temple Grandins at the time. They still weren't very mainstream in the community. And that was a challenge. Hmm. And that's part of my nonprofit, KFM. I provide mentoring, life coaching, and training for those with disabilities in their transition to adulthood because I realized that was something I didn't get when I was a kid. And not only somebody to show them what the future could look like, but also to be a friend and to make sure that they're not feeling isolated, especially during times like we're living in today. Yeah. Do you live alone? 
Yes, I've been living independently throughout most of my adult years, living in the dorms and then off-campus apartment and now living in Hoboken, New Jersey in my own apartment for the past four and a half years now. Yeah, that's great that you've learned some skills along the way that have helped you to support yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I've given a TED Talk on what happens to children with autism when they become adults with autism. So if anyone is listening in and simply wants to gain more information, definitely check that out on YouTube. Yep, I'll post a link to it. I watched it earlier this week, and it's really informative. Thanks so much. Carrie, let's switch topics. Let's talk about autism in the media. So first, how has autism been portrayed in the past, and what changes have you seen in the last decades? I've seen a little bit of everything. I got my first opportunity to work in the entertainment industry when I was 21 years old. I was talking about theater and autism and how that helped me growing up. And I got to work with the Warner Brothers on a film called Joyful Noise because there was a character in that film who was Black and autistic, and they wanted it to be as realistic as possible to somebody who has autism. So I was able to provide my own perspective of growing up as a teenager on the autism spectrum to relate to this role. And before then, I I really, the only films that I remember seeing were Rain Man, which again, just the stereotype of Rain Man for people who don't know at home, just boys, great at math, bojank memory. And what's eating Gilbert Grape with Leonardo DiCaprio, even though they never say he's on the autism spectrum. So it was always white boys. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that stereotypes a lot of our community. And now today, I think we're doing a little bit of a better job of trying to make it more diverse in nature and focusing on a little bit of representation. We still have a long way to go, but the first film I worked on, Joyful Noise, featured a Black character. The second film I worked on focused on a 25-year-old girl on the autism spectrum trying to find love after I wrote my second book called Autism and Falling in Love. And then the HBO series I worked on in 2019 focused on a nonverbal character. And these are the characters I feel like we need to see more represented because we have a lot of autistic characters, but they're still all white boys. It's mm-hmm. the good, good doctor on uh, ABC, Dr. Sean Murphy, autistic savant surgeon, uh, Sam Gardner on a typical college student succeeding, who's also white and on the autism spectrum. And then other shows like Parenthood, these really successful, like autistic white boys. And we need to do a better job of making it more diverse. Yeah. What's the one with Sheldon? Oh, yeah. The the Big Bang Theory. Right. Even though they, they never said he's on the autism spectrum, so many families in our community can relate just because of some of the characteristics he shows. Mm-hmm. Right. So what exactly does your role entail? Like how involved are you in the writing process when they're developing the characters? So usually I am looking over the entire script and I am giving my notes on how the character can be 
portrayed more focus on somebody who's on the autism spectrum, just talking about little mannerisms, potential characteristics they might want to look at, such as stimming, such as having difficulties with body language, the amount of tone they're using in their voice, facial expressions, et cetera, and so forth. So usually pre-production, we're looking at the script. And then later down the line, helping with casting as well, being able to have a, a little bit of an understanding for the people who might be going into the role as well. And then when production is happening, actually shadowing these characters and helping answer any specific questions they may have on any specific scene. And then post-production, helping marketing it to our autism community, wearing many hats uh, within uh, the autism community today. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So you're very involved, actually from start to finish? Usually. I, I I try to just make myself available for the projects I'm working on and making sure that they're as successful as it can be. Could you share some memorable moments, like a story from one of your experiences working with a show or a movie? I definitely think the one that stands out is going to Hollywood for the world premiere of Joyful Noise. and. You know, Queen Latifah being there, Dolly Parton being there, so many amazing A-list celebrities being in uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. And getting to see my my name in the credits at the end was just so surreal. Being a 21-year-old kid who was kind of like always obsessed with movies and then seeing your name. Mm. And also being able to bring your family and your family starts cheering and clapping during the credits while everyone's looking at you and being like, why, why are they clapping for this kid, Carrie Magaro? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that, was, that, that was very, very surreal. Uh, that was definitely one moment. And then just the HBO uh, series, Mrs. Fletcher, which we worked on. So many of my friends are obsessed with HBO. So having the opportunity to showcase that was really, really exciting. Yeah. And as you're saying, you know, it's so important to show the different types of autism because it is a spectrum. Correct. And with media being so influential in culture, like some people who may not have a direct connection to autism, like if they don't have a family member, if they don't know anyone with autism, they're kind of relying on what they see on screen. And so if we continue to just keep showing the savants or you know, the, the typical nonverbals who are rocking back and forth, then that's all that people are going to know and have a reference of. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly how you said, because we're, we're back into the whole 1980s Rain Man kind of system. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we see autism on screen, but we just need to make sure that there's more representation and then also more autistic actors getting the opportunity to audition for the roles. I know that Sia's autism film music has been under some scrutiny for not hiring an autistic actor to play the lead role in her uh, new film. So I, I definitely see it not only about making sure we're writing more characters that are focused on the spectrum of autism, but then also giving the autistic actors the opportunity to show what they're made of. Why do you think there aren't so many autistic actors 
playing disabled characters? Is it because there just aren't a lot of disabled actors or is it because they're auditioning and not getting chosen? And is that a form of ableism there? There's definitely some ableism involved. I don't think that a lot of studios are actively pursuing autistic and disabled actors to audition for these roles. I think also from the other perspective, it's that being that autism is a spectrum, those who have high support needs simply wouldn't necessarily be part of these roles because of the level of support they would specifically need. But that, on the other hand, can be shown as a sign of ableism. I I know for Sia's film, one of the things that came up was that they actually had an autistic actress who was considered for the role, but they found it was too challenging for her on set. And the only thing I could think about was they could have tried a little bit harder to make more reasonable accommodations for that actress. Mm -hmm. That was kind of something that just blew my mind. So I definitely think it's a little bit of everything, making sure that disabled actors are getting opportunities and are being sought out by studios, but then also at the same time, just really making sure they're, they're receiving the accommodations because if they get that role, like the potential role in that film, we want to make sure that they succeed, just like any other actor. Yes, exactly. What are some other things you think we can do to improve the representation of autism in the media? Well, I definitely think we need more people of color. Uh, I did a survey mm-hmm. on my Facebook page, Carrie's Autism Journey, which I love for people to check out. And the poll basically said that the most popular characters were Sean Murphy on The Good Doctor, Sam Garner on Atypical, Max from Parenthood, and then Everything's Gonna Be Okay, which features a autistic girl character. But none of these characters were characters of color. And the only one that was mentioned in the conversation was Billy the blue Power Ranger from the 2017 film Power Rangers, who was a black autistic character. And I was like, just thinking to myself, it's like, how many people actually watched that? Like, don't get me wrong. I was a big Power Ranger fan when I was a kid, but like how many people watch that compared to weekly TV shows that are, are seen by millions and millions and millions. So I definitely think more representation of people in color, not only autism, but in terms of disabled characters overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Carrie. So you mentioned that you published a book called Autism and Falling in Love. And I wanted to talk about some of your experiences. But first, could you maybe just give an overview of what some of the challenges are that individuals with autism face when they're looking for a partner? Sure. So it's funny you bring this up. I was just giving a webinar on dating advice from an autistic relationship coach, which is available on my website, carriemagro.com. So some of my mentees call me the autistic hitch. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie with Will Smith, who's basically a date doctor. Yeah. Most of my mentees, 90, 95% of the time, they don't want to talk about 
job interviews. They don't want to talk about building a resume. They want to talk about the cute boy and the cute girl and how they could go about being in a relationship. And I think, especially when we talk about obstacles that our community have to face when it comes to relationship, it's, again, a very wide spectrum. Intimacy is definitely one big thing, understanding different levels of intimacy and how to go about being in a romantic relationship, open communication, being able to understand nonverbal body language, being able to also really be willing to listen. Because sometimes members of our autism community, especially when they have their key interests like locked in and talking to somebody, they could talk for hours on one specific topic. So making sure that to give your partner the opportunity to discuss and to listen to them. So those are some of the big, big things that I see, especially when it comes to dating. Hmm. What have you learned about love from your experiences? <laughs> it can be a challenge. It definitely can be a challenge. Uh, no, but it's it's definitely well worth it. I've been in love numerous times throughout my life. I've been in over seven or eight relationships now throughout my life, both short and long-term relationships. So I've kind of navigated a lot in the past 14 years since I had my first girlfriend when I was 18. I've learned that it's definitely an ongoing conversation between having a relationship with somebody else, making sure that you are understanding your wants and needs and making sure to put yourself first when it comes to those needs and just making sure that you're finding somebody who is the right fit for you. Mm-hmm. And as you get older, you understand that a little bit more, but, uh, that's what I've kind of learned about love, especially in, in the past decade of change. Are you in a relationship now? I got out of a relationship, and this was the craziest thing. I got out of a relationship maybe four weeks before COVID-19 happened. So I was in a very, very precarious situation, wanting to date, but unfortunately having to go through the trials and tribulations of virtual dating, which is mm. the most bizarre topic (laughs) Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people in our community are facing right now. So I'm single and looking as of right now, at least. Okay. So do you date people on the spectrum and neurotypicals? Is it all mixed or do you find that you get along better with one or the other? I've never had the opportunity to date somebody who's on the autism spectrum. I've always been open to it. But it just never came up as a possible opportunity. So I, I definitely would be open to it in the future. But as of right now, I've only dated people who are neurotypical. Mm-hmm. So in your book, the subtitle is To the One That Got Away. Yes. In our community, one of the misconceptions is that autistic people can't feel empathy for others. And... Some of the people I know are the most empathetic people I know, especially those who have autism. So I wrote as a part of the book, in addition to providing dating advice for those who have disabilities to pursue a relationship, I wrote a letter to the one that got away to really just show people that there are autistic people out there who do feel empathy for others and can have those 
connections with people. So I wrote a love letter to somebody who I was in a relationship with that just didn't work out and just saying thank you for the opportunities to get to learn and, and learn about love from, from you. So. Mm -hmm. so it's been a while. So I came out with my first book, Defining Autism from the Heart in 2013, focused on self-advocacy. And then Autism and Falling in Love came out in 2014. And then my children's book, I Will Light Up Blue, came out in 2019. Mm -hmm. So what should neurotypical people consider when dating someone with autism? Definitely understand that you should always put the person first. We live in this very digital age where I can't tell you how many of my friends have done a Google search of a a potential date date before actually going into the date. So Mm -hmm. just don't jump to conclusions, especially if you find out that they may be on the autism spectrum. Just consider them a person first. I mean, so many people in our community, again, they, they consider themselves an autistic person, but what I definitely recommend is, especially on those first few dates, really just try to understand who they are. And if there's a connection, if you have similar interests, just don't see it as, oh, I'm going on a date with somebody with autism. Just say, I'm going on a date with Carrie. I'm going on a date with this person. That would be the best approach, I would say. Have you ever had any experiences where disclosing your autism actually pushed someone away? The only time it's really ever happened was being in the public spotlight. Sometimes having partners not necessarily want to be in the spotlight as much and be more not necessarily at movie premieres and not being at book signings and having that public notice. So that's the only time it's really come up. Otherwise, people are just like, Oh, okay, that's cool. <laughs> and like, not like, oh, autism. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm sure you've seen this or at least heard of the show Love on the Spectrum. Heard of it. <laughs> For our listeners who haven't heard of it, it's an Australian reality dating show. So what do you think of Love on the Spectrum and how it was produced and the message that they're trying to put out? I thought it was too short, <laughs> being only five episodes on Netflix. Aren't they coming out with another season or no? Fingers crossed. Okay. We'll see. Yeah. I loved a lot of things about it, specifically that it wasn't only autistic people dating autistic people. It was it was a well-rounded show of autistic people dating neurotypicals. And I, I really loved the concept of just trying to navigate several relationships to show that spectrum. Just speaking with their crew a little bit, I am very hopeful that the next season will be a little bit longer, hopefully have a U.S. component, and to also have relationship coaches that are autistic on the show, just to add another element, because they did have relationship coaches on the show, but who weren't on the autism spectrum. And then also just having the opportunity to potentially have nonverbal people trying to find love, because I know several who are nonverbal and trying to find love today. So showing that perspective, I think, would really mean a lot to our community. Mm, Yes, definitely. So when these opportunities come up, like 
you see a show that portrays someone with autism, do you contact them and offer a consultation or are people seeking you out or both? It's a little bit of both. The first movie I worked on, they contacted me. The second movie, I contacted them. And the TV show, they contacted me. So it's a little bit of every which way. But if I do see a project I like, I'm not shy. I'm very, very extroverted now. So I'm putting out my my circumvite and I'm trying to see how I can collaborate. So, Yeah, it's important. I mean, it's good to hear from autistic voices themselves. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I definitely encourage everyone who's listening who might be autistic to don't feel discouraged because of what you potentially see in the media right now with a lack of representation, I feel like overall. Just know that there are going to be opportunities for you in the future, but you definitely have to put yourself out there. Yeah. So I just watched a movie last weekend, actually. It's a Spanish movie. In Spanish, it's called Diecisiete, but it's in English, it's 17. It's actually on Netflix. And it's about this. 17-year-old boy who runs away from juvie and not to spoil anything, he kind of goes on an adventure with his older brother to go rescue a dog, you know, short synopsis. But he, as I was watching the movie, I just noticed so many autistic traits that just couldn't have only been a coincidence, you know, and it really, it made me happy to see that they were trying to portray someone a main character, and also a foreign film as someone with autism. And I was having a discussion with my husband afterwards, and he asked, well, how much good do you think it does if they don't explicitly say that he has autism? Because I just kind of picked up on it because I know the community and I've worked with so many autistic individuals, so I kind of know what I'm seeing. Right. And, you know, in the beginning of the movie, there are kids making fun of him, calling him the R word. But that's like the most they hinted at any kind of difference. So what do you think about that? Like when it's not explicitly said? It's tough because I feel as though having opportunities to disclose that type of information opens a lot of conversations some that are wanted, some that are, aren't wanted. I mean, from the entertainment side of things, I mean, sometimes people say that a character is autistic and then they go out and they promote a nonprofit organization that supports autism. They try to give back in, in a way. But there's some groups that are a little bit more close-minded and just want it to simply be like, this person is autistic, but we don't necessarily want to make it part of the show. We'll show some characteristics, but we won't make it part of it. I definitely encourage entertainment industries to really highlight autism, especially if that person is showing characteristics of being on the autism spectrum, because it can, hopefully, if if it's done in an authentic and realistic way, definitely help show another side to our community, which will hopefully lead to more services, more supports within our community, and then hopefully also the diagnosis rate, hopefully making it easier for people to get a diagnosis at an earlier age if there's showing a, a few of the signs in a specific character. Mm-hmm. 
Right, which will then lead to them having a smoother transition to adulthood, eventually being gainfully employed, being accepted into society, falling in love, yep. all yep. of that. I, I, everything under the full circle. <laughs> yes. All right, Carrie, I'd like to close with one last question. Sure. What advice would you give to those on the spectrum who are looking for romantic relationships right now with the landscape of COVID times? Be patient. Give yourself a break. I feel as though one struggle that I've kind of seen in myself is that being 21 plus 12, (laughs) I... I kind of had a vision of what my love life would look like at a very early age, being married by 25, having kids by 30, and realizing during my journey in adulthood that, you know, you have to understand yourself and understand where you are positioned in life. So I, I definitely recommend that people, especially during COVID times, understand that it is much more challenging right now. Online dating can be an avenue for you. Virtual dating can also be an avenue. Speed virtual speed dating can be an avenue for you. But at the end of the day, oh, could you could you talk a little bit more about that? Virtual speed dating. Yeah, how does that work? Zoom. It's literally like just being in a Zoom meeting with some of your colleagues, and you get a certain amount of minutes, and then they switch you to another breakout room where you get to talk to somebody else. Wow. That's really cool. Very interesting experience, to say the least. But a- anyways, in, in short, just just remind yourself that there will be a quote-unquote new normal eventually. So just be patient with yourself. Don't rush into anything that doesn't make sense for you. And just know that your partner is out there. They're just waiting for you and just put yourself out there. I did a TV interview focus on love on the spectrum, the Netflix show, and talking about what would be my final piece of advice. And it's always that, you know, there there is somebody out there for you. I've had several successful relationships when I thought I would never even kiss a girl. So definitely mm-hmm. take note that you, you do have a very special someone out there and it will come in time. Mm. All right, Carrie, thank you so much for all of your insight and expertise. I'll be sure to post a link to all of your information on our show notes, your website, your Facebook page, and your books as well. Absolutely. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Although there has been an increase in efforts to show more autistic characters on screen, the media have continued to receive criticism for misrepresenting the autism spectrum. Portraying an autistic character with savant abilities is not necessarily inaccurate. However, it only represents about 10% of autistic individuals. Perpetuating stereotypes not only limits what the general public knows about the disorder, it might also lead parents of undiagnosed autistic children to disregard symptoms if they don't look like what they've seen on screen. Casting autistic actors to play autistic characters lets them bring to life real experiences, making stories richer and more believable. With so much undiscovered talent out there, 
further accommodations should be made so that more autistic actors can work safely and comfortably. Fictional narratives are both a reflection of society's values and a powerful vehicle to change them. The more the media normalize the expression of human struggles and emotions, the more society will lean towards acceptance and respect for differences. An increase in positive, diverse, and authentically autistic characters can promote awareness of how wide the autism spectrum really is, it can break stigmas, and it can advance opportunities for all people with disabilities. In case you missed it, our last episode featured Bobby Rubio, the writer and director of Pixar's short, Float. This heartfelt seven-minute animation of a father's path to acceptance was inspired by Bobby's relationship with his autistic son, Alex. Check out episode 51 to learn more about their story and the creative process behind Float. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.